Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 4, Episode 1 for more details on this two-part case. Don't forget to order a copy of our new book, they Walk Among Us, now available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. After a shooting on a small holding that left one man dead and two injured, Albert Dryden was arrested and taken into custody. The incident followed a long-running row over a bungalow built without planning permission. It was supposed to be a routine operation to demolish this building put up without planning permission. But it all ended with a senior planning officer shot dead, a policeman and a television reporter wounded. Following the siege, which lasted two hours, a man was arrested after a struggle with armed police. The drama continued into the afternoon amid fears that the bungalow at the centre of the dispute had been booby-trapped and explosive experts were called in. The trial began on Monday, March 16th, 1992 at Newcastle Crown Court with Judge Justice Anne Ebsworth overseeing the proceedings. Albert Dryden was charged with one count of murder relating to the death of council planner Harry Collinson, three counts of attempted murder against BBC reporter Tony Belmont, PC Campbell 
and solicitor Michael Dunstan, and finally two counts of wounding with intent due to the injuries suffered by Belmont and Campbell. The defendant pleaded not guilty to all six charges on the grounds of diminished responsibility. During opening statements, the jury looked impassive as they watched BBC News coverage of the planning dispute in which Dryden shot dead Harry Collinson before turning the gun on the crowd of onlookers who were desperately trying to flee. They then watched the same event but from a different angle, taken by an employee of the Derwentside District Council. Albert Dryden stood up in the dock as the prosecutor John Milford QC paused the film at critical points, playing some moments in slow motion. In a final still, Harry Collinson was captured lying on the ground in a ditch. The prosecutor John Milford QC said, The defence will set out to prove that at the time of the killing, the defendant was suffering from such abnormality of mind as to substantially diminish his mental responsibility for killing Collinson. Milford went on to say that the jury would hear from an expert witness that would prove the defence's claim of diminished responsibility was untrue, in spite of Dryden's belief that he should be facing a charge of manslaughter instead of murder. The prosecuting counsel told the jury that while much had been reported about the case, they should put that information to the back of their minds and base their verdict solely on what they heard in the courtroom. On the morning of June 20th, 1991, before the demolition was due to take place, Albert Dryden had posed for photographs in front of his property on Eliza Lane in County Durham. He was interviewed by BBC Look North reporter Tony Belmont, and claimed that he had an appeal pending from the Department of the Environment on the decision to demolish the bungalow. He said the council would be acting unlawfully if they accessed his property. Dryden also spoke with Gary Willey, a journalist with the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, and stated that hardware would be used to defend his land. John Milford QC told the court that Albert Dryden had met with Gary Willey on several occasions and in one particular exchange he had threatened to use violence to stop the bungalow being destroyed. When Harry Collinson arrived at Eliza Lane on the morning of the shooting, he spoke in a reasonable but firm manner and confirmed the demolition was going to take place. Before retrieving a firearm and shooting dead the planning officer, Dryden said, You do so at your own risk. It's entirely up to you, but you're making a sad decision. In the courtroom, John Milford QC addressed the jury of six men and six women. He said, What follows you may think demonstrates that Dryden had decided to take the most desperate measures to protect his property that it was no decision taken in the heat or spur of the moment and that the talk of guns which others in the past may have just thought of as wild talk was no such thing. One of the first witnesses to take the stand was Michael Dunstan, the solicitor for Derwinside Council. He informed the court that on several occasions he had told council officers to get a high court injunction before proceeding with the demolition. 
He also testified that he had warned them that if there was likely to be any violence or threats of violence, the council should retreat and a different form of proceedings should take place. Looking distressed as he gave evidence, the solicitor said that a committee meeting took place in which both he and the local police force suggested they go in to carry out the work without informing the defendant. However, after a vote, they were overruled by the council who recommended that the demolition should be done openly and Dryden be informed of their visit. On the second day of the trial, Helen Dodd, a court administration officer who worked at Concert County Court, told the jury that she had spoken with Albert Dryden around two months before the shooting. Dryden had sought an injunction against the employees of Derwentside District Council and while speaking with Helen Dodd, he told her that council staff had been coming onto his land, trespassing and taking photographs. As he left, Dryden then threatened he would take a gun to the lot of them. The court also heard from the two men who had been seriously injured in the shooting. BBC reporter Tony Belmont had been hit by a bullet as he tried to flee the scene. He described the pain as quite tremendous and said, As I was running, the pain seemed to subside. There's a fear and panic that sets in when you're running for your life literally. And then the pain came back. Stephen Campbell, a police officer who was shot while trying to make his escape, spoke about his injuries. I was running as fast as I could considering I had a full uniform on, he said. I tried to keep running. My leg went numb, but I kept on running. Some members of the public at the scene helped PC Campbell receive first aid before he was rushed to the hospital. The officer remained there for a week was unable to return to work until five months later. His injuries were not only physical but mental. Since the incident, he also received counselling. Three witnesses to the shooting also recounted the series of events as dried and opened fire into the crowd. One witness, BBC camera operator Philip Dobson, told a packed Newcastle courtroom that he panicked when he was trapped with his colleague, a sound recordist, as the cable linking their equipment became tangled in the jaws of a nearby digger. While they managed to free the cable from the digger, they could not release themselves from each other, so both men had to make their escape while they were still tied together. Gary Willey told the jury at Newcastle Crown Court that he had visited Dryden and been shown a bullet casing that was three to four inches long, which the defendant allegedly described as full metal jacket. Dryden was said to have told the reporter that along with threatening to quote, burn Collinson, he also threatened that he would burn the council planner's wife at the stake. In court, Gary Willey went on to say, Throughout the whole thing, Dryden was of the opinion that he had been wronged by council officials from the planning department, who he believed misled him. 
Dryden mentioned Harry Collinson frequently during these threats. He also said that he would load up a car full of explosives and drive it into the civic centre where council staff worked. The defendant had allegedly told the journalist they would be running out of body bags. Counsel for the defence James Chadwin QC, whose clients included Yorkshire ripper Peter Sutcliffe and British spree killer Anthony Arkwright, cross-examined Gary Willey. The witness admitted that Dryden was seen as an eccentric and not many people believed his threats. The journalist did not take seriously Dryden's threat that he planned to drive a car filled with explosives into the Civic Centre. As the first week of the trial came to a close, Newcastle Crown Court would hear from Detective Chief Inspector Arthur Proud. The defendant had asked to speak with him during the two-hour standoff and was also interviewed by Proud after being taken into custody. During questioning, Dryden said that he could hear voices and even claimed that Harry Collinson was haunting him in his jail cell. The defendant at first denied the shooting but slowly agreed he must have committed the killing. Dryden told DCI Proud that he recalled firing the weapon above the heads of bystanders as they tried to flee, but said that he did not want to hurt anyone and assumed the bullets would land in some nearby heather at the end of the lane. Following a cross-examination, DCI Proud was questioned again by Prosecutor John Milford QC, and the witness said that although Dryden alleged he could hear voices, this wasn't until June 21st, his second day in custody. There was no mention of these voices when he was first arrested. Transcripts of the police interview between Dryden and the police were read aloud to the court. Dryden was asked what he meant when he told Harry Collinson, you might not be around to see the outcome of this disaster. Dryden told officers that he simply meant that another planning officer would likely be involved and this was in no way a threat. Albert Dryden was also questioned if he had planned the shooting and he said, No, I do not know what's come over me. There was no motive. I don't know whether I'd done it or not. I don't know why I'd done it. It's just something that came over us and I cannot account for my actions. I do not know where I got the gun from. It was a one-off thing. Only if I'd been in control, it probably wouldn't have happened. The jury were also shown the revolver used in the attack and they were informed that Dryden had an extensive collection of weapons. Forensic firearms expert Malcolm Fletcher took the stand and testified that of all the firearms found on Dryden's property, the Webley-patented Enfield-manufactured revolver used in the killing was the most effective, as some of the other guns found were not capable of being fired. As the second week of the trial began, Albert Dryden would take the stand. 
He told the jury that he mentioned his plans to build a bungalow to Council Planning Officer Harry Collinson in April 1988, who he was familiar with at the time, and the planning officer estimated the cost to build the home at £70,000. Dryden told him that he thought he could do it for 15000 The pair got on incredibly well during their early association, and Dryden even called Collinson a gentleman. He gave us all the attention I wanted. He seemed first class, the defendant said. Whenever Dryden had questions about developments on his small holding, Collinson was quick to answer them, even telling the defendant there was no need to book an appointment to see him, just come along to his office. When discussing the pair, journalist Gary Willey would say, Albert and Harry built up a close relationship. I was told the two met regularly in Collinson's office over coffee and biscuits, and Harry opened his heart to Dryden about how upset he was and not getting the senior job in his department. After a new head of planning was appointed at Derwinside Council, Dryden said it was then that their relationship began to sour. According to Dryden, when he discussed his plans for the bungalow, Collinson allegedly told him, Well, it's up to you. It will never work. I think you'll be coming back in a few months' time saying, I wish I never had bothered. Dryden decided to carry out the work on the small holding and calculated that he had spent 2,560 man-hours in all over the period of nearly a year. When it was almost complete and the roof covering was being added, Dryden received a letter that said old work must cease and the building would have to be demolished. Upset, Dryden took the letter to Harry Collinson. He was sure there must have been a mistake. Collinson told Dryden the building would have to come down, as no planning permission had been submitted. Dryden told the jury that he was infuriated, and said he had given us verbal agreement to do it. He had not stopped us in any way. Further frustration came when Dryden said that Harry Collinson chose not to attend the planning inquiry. He claimed that if Collinson did, the outcome would have been different and he could have kept the bungalow. Dryden also alleged that after the inquiry, he met with Collinson who said, If I had been at the inquiry and told the truth, I probably would have been sacked. We should have stopped you before we started. Albert Dryden spent three hours in the witness box. He told the jury that he accepted that he took the life of Harry Collinson and injured Tony Belmont and Stephen Campbell, though he professed he could not remember doing it. He testified that one of the last things he recalled was the excavator being given the signal to go ahead and move onto his land. Almost instantly, after seeing the signal for workmen to move the machinery... Dryden said he had a blinding headache, which felt like a brain hemorrhage or seizure. He tried to make it back to his caravan to get his medication. The caravan seemed to be moving on water, Dryden said. I didn't know where I was, and I knew something was going to happen to me. The next thing he could remember was being in his caravan, which was surrounded by armed police. 
from the stand, Dryden was asked how he felt about the shooting, and he said, I think it's a tragedy. It would have been avoided. It should never have happened. And it was because they decided to take the law into their own hands and not back off. They just wouldn't wait a few more days or a few more weeks, and it all turned out very badly. The prosecutor queried if Dryden was happy to disregard the law if it didn't suit him, and the defendant replied, I don't think so. John Milford QC went on to highlight the stockpile of weapons found at Dryden's property, but the defendant said that he could see nothing wrong with it. Dryden told the court that he had purchased the World War I weapon used in the killing for 10 shillings before his 12th birthday in 1952. A school friend had stolen the unlicensed firearm from his father and was looking to sell it. Dryden testified that he collected guns as a boy and had bought a Luger pistol and a sniper rifle, which he tested during evenings at a nearby farm. When asked about the weapon that he had stored under the wheel arch of his caravan, Albert Dryden said that he put it there as he was concerned someone might steal it. The defendant spoke of the voices he heard before the shooting. Some had told him to burn down the council offices, others to deflate the employees' car tyres. Dryden said that a conflicting voice in his head had tried to persuade him not to do it. Prosecutor John Milford QC addressed Dryden and said, Is there any truth in these voices at all? Or is it the case that you are more than happy to invent symptoms that might give others the impression that you are psychiatrically unwell, or were at the time? Dryden insisted that the voices were real. He also disagreed with the testimony provided by journalist Gary Willey. He proclaimed that he did not say he would burn Harry Collinson or his wife and did not practice with a machine gun. When testifying about the character of Gary Willey, Dryden said, He is a liar. He is a stranger to the truth. While being questioned by his counsel James Chadwin QC, Albert Dryden was asked whether he thought the council planner deserved to die. He replied, Everybody has to die, but nobody deserves to be killed. Dryden apologised for shooting both Tony Belmont and Stephen Campbell, but went on to say they had only been there because of Harry Collinson telling people of the demolition. The defendant seemed confident that he was not to blame, and it was Collinson who could not let the matter rest. Dryden said, Mr Collinson was obsessed with having the building down. As long as it stayed, his position was jeopardised. At one stage, he was nearly crying. While James Chadwin QC agreed that Albert Dryden pulled the trigger, he argued that Dryden was not accountable for his actions. Albert Dryden was born on May 12, 1940 to parents Nora and Albert Dryden Sr. His mother and father were members of the Salvation Army and were highly respected figures in the community. Albert was a withdrawn and solitary child 
though had a highly active imagination. Raised in concert, Dryden was the fifth of eight children and from an early age developed a fascination with Americana. He would often be seen playing cowboys and Indians. His father passed away when he was 15. He struggled with his studies and after school Dryden worked on a farm before finding employment at the Concert Iron Company like his father before him. Unfortunately, his position there did not last long, so he found himself in the army. This too did not offer much appeal before he left under a cloud following his basic training. Along with a love of guns, he developed a fascination with rockets, which he picked up from a childhood friend who had been part of a rocket society when he had studied at Oklahoma University in the United States. While reminiscing, Dryden told the court that on one occasion he set off a homemade rocket and accidentally almost struck an aircraft. When Dryden was 21 in 1961, he had been stopped in his efforts to construct these homemade rockets after police discovered that the parts he had been using came from a German Luger semi-automatic pistol for which Dryden did not have a firearms licence. The authorities also found that Dryden was making homemade highly volatile explosive fuel to power his rockets. His actions were discovered after he threatened farmers who were unhappy that he was using a nearby field as a launch pad. For his actions, Dryden was fined £5 at Concert Magistrates Court. Despite his later admission that he nearly brought down an aircraft, at the time, Dryden protested insisting the fuel he made in his garden shed was not dangerous, as the components included sugar, which he proclaimed, we use in everyday tea. He also claimed he had successfully launched 98 rockets that had travelled up to three miles into the air. I was going to try and beat the amateur flight record, he said. In 1966, Dryden again found work with the Concert Iron Company in their storeroom, although they had since become part of British Steel. He never moved from his childhood home on Priestmond Avenue in the town of Concert, spending his mornings and evenings caring for his elderly mother and brother who had diabetes and Down syndrome. After Dryden was made redundant in 1980, he first purchased a convenience store, and when that failed to make a profit, he bought a chainsaw and began to cut logs which he then sold. His neighbours were less than thrilled by the noise, so Dryden moved his operation to a piece of land on Eliza Lane, which he leased from his then-girlfriend's mother, later buying it outright. There he could continue his woodcutting business and any other activities he liked, undisturbed. Eventually he settled on building a shed for cattle, then a greenhouse, then a bungalow which the council requested he demolish. Due to his failing health, brought on in part by the stress of the impending demolition, Dryden visited his GP, Dr Chapman, on June the 11th, nine days before the shooting. Dryden was not eating and barely sleeping. 
The doctor would later give testimony that Dryden seemed unhinged and very agitated, although he did not feel alarmed by his patient's behaviour. Dr Chapman prescribed Dryden with a mild tranquilizer, though did not think it necessary to give him antidepressants or refer him to a psychologist. As his testimony came to a close, Dryden spoke about the day of the shooting and testified that he had not planned to resist or be violent. He was reminded that at no point during the police interviews after his arrest did he mention that he had suffered any form of brain seizure. Dryden insisted that his health was a matter for doctors, not the police. However, he was also reminded by the prosecutor that this was never mentioned to the psychologist or doctors he spoke with after his arrest. During the trial, three doctors were called by the defence to argue the case of diminished responsibility. This included Dr Leslie Burton, Dr Peter Wood, along with the Home Office psychologist, Dr Eric Wright. Dr Wright testified that the defendant was more self-disciplined and self-sufficient than the average person. He exhibited signs that he was more conservative and, in spite of the shooting, generally less impulsive. His IQ was 80, in the lower 25% of the population. In his opinion, Dr Wright said Dryden showed signs of obsessional personality disorder, paranoia, and depression. Dr Leslie Burton also saw Dryden a number of times while in custody. Dryden told the doctor that he had made attempts to contact Margaret Thatcher, the then Prime Minister, to settle the dispute he had with the council. Dryden offered the Prime Minister travel costs that included airfare and taxi fees, so she was not out of pocket. Regarding Dryden, Dr Burton told the court, He likes things in a very cut-and-dry manner or black and white. There aren't shades of grey. The doctor made notes that listed the defendant's obsession with detail and concluded that Dryden was depressed. Further notes were made that Dryden's behaviour was becoming ever more erratic as he was not reacting well to the stress of being incarcerated. Dr Burton came to learn that Dryden had been through a period of severe reactive depression two years before the shooting and believed that the defendant was in a psychotic state. During their discussions shortly before the trial, Dryden voiced his desire to open a hotel or a car museum. He believed he could obtain a European Economic Community grant of £95,000 to help him realise his ideas. Dr Burton testified this did seem odd given the defendant's circumstances. The doctor believed that Albert Dryden was suffering from an abnormality of mind induced by illness, which substantially impaired his responsibility. He said, In my opinion, a paranoid obsessional personality would amount to an abnormality of mind. The doctor also believed that Dryden was suffering from a depressive illness before the alleged offence, as he lost interest in his hobbies and had suicidal thoughts. Dryden had told him that he had twice played Russian roulette 
reportedly said, I seem to have been spared for some reason or another. When the topic of Dryden's inability to recall the shooting came up in court, Dr. Burton said, It could be genuine amnesia, where somebody becomes extremely emotionally aroused. Dr. Peter Wood, a consultant forensic psychiatrist, also gave evidence on behalf of the defence. He had seen Dryden on two occasions leading up to the trial. The doctor noted that due to his family history and his own eccentricity, the defendant had a depressive predisposition. According to Dr. Wood, Dryden exhibited elevated levels of paranoia and psychosis and had a highly abnormal personality. The doctor believed Dryden had been paranoid and obsessional for many years. During his meetings with Dryden, the doctor noted that the defendant had a morbid fascination with death from around the age of 10, and the impact of his father passing during his teenage years would certainly have had an effect. Dr. Peter Wood also told the court that during his discussion with Dryden, he came to learn that the defendant claimed that when he was younger, he had been shot in the head twice. The first incident occurred when Dryden was 18. He was hit by a 22 bullet in a shooting range accident. The second incident happened four years later when Dryden and his friends were messing about with a Colt revolver. They were trying to shoot apples and tin cans off the top of each other's heads. Despite the damage being superficial, Dr. Wood believed this to be of medical significance because of the circumstances that Dryden was putting himself in. Dr. Wood also mentioned Albert Dryden's level of self-discipline and said, The difficulty is that when that control goes, it goes in a big way. In my view, in this particular case at the moment in question, Dryden thought he was justified in shooting Mr. Collinson. Dr. Wood concluded that Dryden's responsibility in the shooting was substantially diminished as he was suffering from symptoms of anxiety and depression, and this had led to a considerably abnormal mental state. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Wow. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Center. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. To rebuff the defence's argument, Dr. Hamish McClelland was called on behalf of the prosecution. He spoke with Albert Dryden three times while he was in custody and agreed with elements of the other doctor's findings that Dryden suffered from depression and had an abnormality of mind, but McLennan believed it was not substantial enough to affect Dryden's responsibility for his crimes. Part of a report the doctor produced on the defendant described him as a pathetic, obsessive, depressed and paranoid man of limited intelligence pushed to the limits. During his testimony, Dr. McLennan stated, This man was in the centre of a grand opera-like setting, or to change the metaphor, a scene from a western film in which the homesteader is going to be evicted. Due to the camera and spectators, Dr. McLennan wondered if Dryden could have felt that he needed to act out the part. The doctor testified that Dryden's behaviour escalated when he saw the excavator and, along with his hatred for Harry Collinson, which the defendant saw as a representation of the district council he despised so much, this caused him to act as he did. At the start of the third week of the trial, the prosecution and defence began their closing arguments. Addressing the jury, John Milford QC reminded them of the threat to Newcastle Evening Chronicle reporter Gary Willey and dismissed the defence's argument that Albert Dryden was not responsible for his actions. The prosecutor said he was not a rubber band suddenly finding himself stretched to the limit. He was a man who decided what he was going to do 
to use a firearm. The first bullet went into Mr Collinson's heart. Should there be any doubt about its effect, a further two went into his vital organs. That, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is murder. Milford went on to say, maybe he did not have that machine gun. Maybe he was not going to burn Mrs Collinson at the stake. But one thing is certain. He did, to use the Americanism, burn Harry Collinson. The judge, Justice Ebsworth, provided a comprehensive summing up of the case that would run well into 150 pages when transcribed. She told the jury it was the prosecution's job to prove murder, but said, It will be for the defendant to prove to you on the balance of probabilities that his responsibility for the crime of murder is diminished. The jury were allowed to watch the footage as many times as needed, and the judge said the conflicting medical evidence on the issue of Dryden's responsibility would need to be considered. The judge went on to say, Unusually, this is a case where you actually have video films of the acts being done which actually cause death. Before she reminded the jury, nothing arising from any of these matters could in law justify the shooting of Mr Collinson. On April 1st, 1992, Albert Dryden learned his fate. As the verdict was read out, Dryden stood silent and impassive. The evidence lasted two and a half weeks, but it took the jury just two hours to find Albert Dryden guilty of murder. Earlier they'd watched a video of the cold-blooded murder seen by millions of TV viewers just hours after the shooting. The jury had dismissed the argument that Albert Dryden was mentally ill and from the short time it took to reach a unanimous verdict, it was clear they saw Dryden as a cold-blooded killer. Dryden had pleaded not guilty, but the judge said he wasn't abnormal enough to justify diminished responsibility. She called the shooting grotesque as she handed out life for Collinson's murder, life for attempting to murder the council solicitor, and seven years each for wounding a policeman and TV reporter. The detective who led the first interviews after the shooting emerged with PC Stephen Campbell, the policeman who was shot by Dryden. My thoughts at the present moment are with Harry Collinson's family, uh, with the everybody else who's been touched by it. But also, you know, we, we should really be thinking about Albert Dryden's family as well, because they have to pick the pieces up as well. The judge also ordered that all firearms and ammunition found on Dryden's properties be destroyed. After the verdict... Numerous articles in the press continued to question why police did not do more when they were informed of Albert Dryden's intentions by journalist Gary Willey. As newly disclosed information highlighted that Dryden had a previous conviction for firearms offences. He was granted a firearms licence and purchased a rifle when he was 17. However, his licence was revoked three years later in 1960 when his home was searched and a sawn-off shotgun along with equipment for making ammunition was discovered. He received 12 months probation. It was only a year later and he was again in trouble with the law 
as he was still using gun components and explosives to construct a series of homemade rockets. Despite this information, police stated that they felt there was insufficient evidence to apply for a search warrant, and although his love for guns was well known in the local community, few people came forward to inform the authorities. Eddie Marchant, assistant chief constable for Durham Constabulary, was interviewed and said, I don't think anyone who knew Dryden would have predicted the events at Buttsfield, and no one can be blamed for the tragedy other than the one that pulled the trigger. No matter what amount of contingency planning you do, um, no matter what precautions that you think you've taken, the unexpected is always round the corner, and it was the unexpected. Again, I would repeat, Mr. Willie, uh, Albert Dryden's friends, the council officials, no one expected that day Albert Dryden to resort to the use of firearms. To make matters worse for the victims and their families, Dryden was being described as a misguided genius and folk hero that was merely eccentric, standing up against those people in authority, a David and Goliath struggle over council bureaucracy. As a second letter had arrived at Dryden's residence two days after the shooting, saying that the demolition must go ahead, his supporters, who had already gathered 3,000 signatures, continued to call for an independent public inquiry into the matter. Things continued to go from bad to worse, when an individual claiming to be a Dryden supporter sent multiple death threats to Roy Collinson, one of Harry's surviving brothers. The two letters appeared to have been written by the same person on the same notepad. The notes read that if Roy did not shut up, he would end up dead like his brother. In one of the letters, it threatened that Roy Collinson would need eyes in the back of his head for the rest of his life. Collinson believed the threats related to comments he made after the trial. He had told reporters, the best thing Albert Dryden can do is go into his cell and hang himself. Staff working at the local council also continued receiving correspondence said to be from Dryden supporters well into the following year. Dryden's family condemned the action and said, There is no way we can tolerate anything like that. We can't forgive that sort of behaviour. Only two days into his sentence, Albert Dryden ordered that the bungalow be torn down. As one of his brothers and a brother-in-law began demolishing the roof and part of the brickwork, they were asked for comment by the press. One of them said, We have nothing to say. We have had enough. The entire single-storey building was eventually taken down. As the after-effects of the shooting looked to be abating, comments made by one of the council planning committee members, Derek McVickers, again sparked a public whirlwind when McVickers said that he could understand why Dryden took the action he did. McVickers, a local businessman, who was one of the committee members that agreed Dryden's bungalow had to come down, was furious when fellow planning committee members deferred a decision on a building that McVickers owned. He said, 
I can quite understand how an applicant gets frustrated and does things like Dryden. It makes me very, very angry. It was discovered that the council planning committee member had been using a building to service vehicles without permission since 1975 and sought a decision retrospectively. While he received widespread condemnation and the comments were labelled insensitive by his fellow committee members, Derek McVickers initially refused to apologise. He said that he did not support what Dryden did as he was friends with Harry Collinson and his family, but claimed the council's decision to reject his proposal was horrendous. The committee would later grant McVicar's retrospective planning permission, and he apologised for his remarks after what he called an eruption of pressure. A week after the trial, it was announced that a full inquest into the death of Harry Collinson, which was adjourned pending the outcome of the trial, would not be concluded. Geoffrey Burt, the coroner for North Durham, said that no useful purpose would be served if it was reopened. Throughout April, there were calls for a judicial inquiry into the death of Harry Collinson, by the National and Local Government Officers Association, of which he had been a member. Due to what was said to be a rising trend in attacks on public officials, fellow members of the association said that the internal inquiries that had been completed so far would not go far enough. Union leader Joe Williams said, The murder of Harry Collinson is an extreme example of an ever-growing problem of violence against all types of people doing their jobs. People from all sectors are subject to verbal and physical abuse on a daily basis. These included people as diverse as bus drivers, police, bar staff and even estate agents. The attempts to justify it are dangerous. We must all do everything possible to ensure that a tragedy of this nature never happens again. The one thing that that is for sure is that the whole incident has raised a number of questions uh, of different kinds, both regard to the police, both regard to the authority, and with regard to procedures that were were used at the time. And uh, although Mr Johnson has told me previously that they're carrying out an inquiry uh, and has promised that this will be made available to the trade union uh, completely, that nothing will be held back, I've got to say that as far as we are concerned, uh, justice shouldn't only be done, justice should be seen to be done and it won't be in this way. A report produced later that month would absolve Derwinside Council of any wrongdoing when Chief Executive Neil Johnson wrote... Overall, I found that the authority acted within the law and at no time was it capricious in its dealings with Mr Dryden. Despite having to work in an atmosphere of threats and violence, a commendably calm, professional and impartial approach was adopted by the authority. In another report, this time by the Royal Town Planning Institute, agreed that Harry Collinson acted correctly when carrying out his duties. These findings were met with opposition by a group of supporters of the killer who were naming themselves the Friends of Albert Dryden.
after Albert Dryden was sent to service sentence in Franklin Prison in County Durham. The Category A prisoner had reportedly started a DIY job in the workshop, constructing furniture for prison cells. His solicitor confirmed that he would be seeking to appeal his sentence. During the middle of May, the three police officers who tackled Albert Dryden to the ground received a bravery award for their actions. Along with Sergeant John Taylor, Police Constables Philip Brown and Andy Ray received the Durham Constabulary's Matt Wilkinson Trophy, which honours outstanding police work. On the morning of June 20th, 1992, a year to the day from Harry Collinson's death, a nature reserve was dedicated to the council planner after a memorial fund had raised over £21,000. Five acres of land were purchased in High Wood in the Derwent Valley and Durham Wildlife Trust would manage the community reserve. During a service to commemorate his passing, a stone memorial was unveiled. The inscription read, Harry Collinson Nature Reserve. A tragic price to pay for doing a job which we as members of the community required him to carry out. 20th of June, 1991. Part of the funds raised were also used to set up a travel scholarship to Newcastle University, where Harry Collinson studied. Harry's surviving brother Roy spoke to the press and said, The memorial is a fitting tribute to Harry in an area he loved, close to where his grandparents and mother came from, and fitting for his interest in nature. In later years, a tribute to Harry Collinson would be moved to Durham County Hall, along with other county council dedications to officers killed in the First and Second World Wars. While Albert Dryden's supporters were fighting to get their voices heard by the council, behind bars, Dryden was fighting his own battle. After the trial, a judge ordered that all firearms and ammunition found on Dryden's multiple properties be destroyed. However, Dryden wanted to keep the weapon he'd used in the murder so he could sell it upon his release. He had reportedly said, I've had it for 40 years and I'm entitled to some money for it. Dryden was under the impression that the revolver could fetch upwards of £20,000, and he requested that police auction the weapon and put the funds aside. Local newspaper The Newcastle Journal spoke with a firearms expert that worked for an auction house. They confirmed that the firearm would not fetch more than £60. The expert said for a similar gun to reach the £20,000 price tag Dryden was claiming, it would need to be encrusted with diamonds. To no one's surprise, Dryden's request was denied. Albert Dryden's supporters continued to campaign for an inquiry and during one such meeting at the end of July 1992, 
100 people gathered to voice their unhappiness with the council's decision. A friend of Dryden's, Jill Hall, said that she had gathered a 3,000-name petition backing an inquiry and claimed she was going to present this to the Prime Minister. There are questions that have to be answered. They just do have to answer them. And they're talking about an internal inquiry, but I can't see how they can actually investigate themselves. So therefore, we would like to see an independent public inquiry. And it's not just, as the council would like to think, it's a small minority in the area. It isn't. There are 3,000 plus names in here to say it isn't. And these people wouldn't sign this if they didn't feel strongly about it. So you can say that every person in here wants an independent public inquiry. In August 1992, it was reported that Albert Dryden had been granted leave to appeal his sentence. No date had been fixed for the proceedings, which would be held at the Court of Appeal in London. It was believed that Dryden's mental state at the time of the killing would be the central plank of the defence's argument. The decision was condemned by Harry Collinson's brother Roy, who said, It will be a waste of money. Albert murdered my brother, and millions of people saw him do it. From behind bars, Dryden continued to amass support from farmers in the north of England who faced their own disputes with the local councils. One such farmer, David Cannon from South Dissington Farm in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, became so irate with his local council, he arrived at their offices and sprayed the building with four tonnes of manure as they had refused planning permission for him to build a retirement bungalow near his farm. When Dryden found out about the incident, he wrote to the farmer from his cell. Part of the letter read, You did a good job. It was well done. And I am proud of you. Farmers and locals upset with Doe Inside Council were not the only ones communicating with Dryden. Seven-year-old Darren Graham, who lived in concert, had been allowed to write to the inmate as his grandmother and mother were supporting Dryden's cause. While the prisoner was unable to keep up with the volume of correspondence he was receiving, most of it reading like fan mail, he replied to Darren's letter telling the seven-year-old that he had just had fish and chips for dinner and to be a good boy in school. After making the front page of the Newcastle Journal, in a photo that pictured Darren smiling and holding the letter penned by Dryden, Darren's mother told reporters that she didn't mind her son corresponding with a convicted killer, as she believed he was innocent. She would be visiting Dryden in prison and joining the gathering that was headed to No. 10 Downing Street to deliver a petition requesting an independent inquiry into the case be carried out. No such inquiry would take place, and it wouldn't be until February 1994 that an appeal was heard before Lord Chief Justice Lord Taylor, Mr Justice McPherson and Mr Justice Steele. James Chadwin QC was acting on behalf of Albert Dryden, and John Milford QC and Ian Graham acted on behalf of the Crown. 
Dryden's counsel requested that the three appeal judges reduce his sentence to manslaughter due to diminished responsibility and provocation. While much was made in the press of the reasons for Dryden's actions, the appeal itself was based solely on the comments made by the judge, Justice Anne Ebsworth. In the first part of his argument, James Chadwin QC said that during the summing up of the case, the judge failed to fully convey certain aspects of the medical evidence presented at trial. Chadwin agreed that the judge correctly conveyed the law surrounding diminished responsibility, but she failed to draw the jury's attention to significant elements of the medical evidence. When addressing the jury, the judge said, Whether the abnormality substantially impaired his responsibility for the killing of Mr. Collinson is a matter for your judgment. It is a matter of degree, and you consider all of the evidence in relation to it. James Chadwin QC submitted that this may have directed the jury to believe they could ignore the medical evidence. Chadwin also claimed that the judge should have told the jury they could only form a difference of opinion to the medical experts if the evidence provided a justification for that conclusion. Dryden's counsel argued that the judge did not draw enough attention to the significant difference between depression and clinical depression or severe depression. James Chadwin QC also believed that the jury would not know the clinical difference between them, which could have a substantial impact on their decision-making process. The second part of the judge's summary, which the appellant's counsel disputed, was the judge's direction concerning the nature of provocation and loss of self-control. Chadwin felt she admitted to draw the jury's attention to some of the appellant's characteristics, namely his eccentricity and obsessional behaviour. In their decision, the three appeal judges felt the original trial judge put across a comprehensive summing up of the case and rightly directed the jury as they had a balanced medical opinion from both sides. The appeal judges also felt the jury were uniquely placed as they had something that was rarely, if ever, available to other jurors. Footage of the shooting. James Chadwin QC had argued that the jury saw what looked like a cold-blooded shooting at close range and went on to say, The dramatic and unusual circumstances of the shooting may well have aroused them emotionally against the appellant. However, the appeal judges agreed this meant the jury had not only a balanced view of the medical evidence from the appellant's state of mind, but also footage of him carrying out the act. The appeal judges believed the jury had to consider all the evidence. Also, in response to James Chadwin QC's claims that the original trial judge should have told the jury they needed to justify their conclusions with other evidence if it deviated from the testimony provided by medical professionals, it was concluded that the information the jury gleaned to inform their diagnosis was in fact from Albert Dryden. So the jury were well within their rights to question his accuracy, honesty and reliability. The appeal judges also referenced passages of the summing up in which the trial judge made a clear distinction between the layman's understanding of depression 
and a medical expert using the terms clinical depression or severe depression. Finally, when addressing the second point of the appeal that related to provocation, the three appeal judges agreed that the trial judge's summing up was in that respect flawed, as the jury were not directed to the appellant's obsessional and eccentric behaviour. However, this would not be the end of the matter, as there were plenty of factors which did point to Dryden having an intent to cause injury, as he announced what he planned to do and had prepared himself by collecting a loaded gun. In their opinion, the circumstances showed that Dryden did in no way lose self-control. Part of the judge's decision read, We are satisfied the jury would inevitably have rejected the suggestion that to go in, deliberately put on the holster, come out with a loaded gun and fire it to kill was something which someone with the self-control of a reasonable man would have done. The three appeal judges were satisfied there was not a miscarriage of justice and Dryden's appeal was denied. At the start of January 1995, a friend of Albert Dryden's John Graham, who had campaigned for Dryden's release, would end up taking his own life. He witnessed the shooting and stood near Harry Collinson when Dryden pulled the trigger. John Graham had often visited Dryden in prison, but he was haunted by the memory of what he had seen. He separated from his wife of 16 years and had seen a doctor to treat his mental health problems. Sadly, his body was later found on Sunday, January 22, 1995, under a railway viaduct near his home in concert. He had died from multiple injuries after he attempted to hang himself, but the rope snapped and he fell 30 feet. The coroner ruled, It is clear from the circumstances that he must have intended to take his own life. In the late 90s, David Blackie, a former police sergeant, firearms instructor and tactical advisor, began researching the shooting for a book that would eventually be published in 2006 called Death on a Summer's Day. He was a neighbour to Mabel Collinson, Harry's mother, and he had been at the scene following the shooting. Before the book's publication, Blackie had met with Dryden in prison on several occasions and he spoke to the Northern Echo about his manuscript and what he saw when he came face to face with the inmate. My first impressions were of a stocky man in his mid-fifties, about five foot four, with collar-length white hair, combed across his head like the man in the Hamlet advert, with a rubicund appearance, a spiky white beard, dancing blue eyes, looking a bit like Father Christmas on a bad day. Blackie also spoke about his experience trying to interview his subject. When I tried to ask specific questions about what had happened on the day of the killing, each time he would return the conversation to his plight as the hard-done-by little man 
just trying to do his own thing without causing harm to anyone. It was not until much later that I realised that this random prevarication was a conscious and clinical ploy by Dryden to avoid admitting responsibility for the murder. When the prison governor allowed David Blackie to record an interview with his subject, Dryden was informed and sent the questions beforehand. Either the fact he was being recorded or the questions themselves drove Dryden into a rage and he would no longer speak with the author. In 2008, Albert Dryden announced that he would be making a further appeal from his cell in Haverig Prison in Cumbria. He had been denied parole in 2001 and again in 2004, as the parole board felt he showed little evidence of remorse. His status had, however, been reduced to a Category B prisoner, affording him some freedoms he would otherwise have been denied. Now claiming he had grounds for provocation, Dryden had reportedly raised £47,000 which would go towards his defence. But this would amount to little, as all his future appeals would be rejected. While incarcerated, Dryden became detached from reality when he alleged that he was only sent to prison due to a conspiracy by the Freemasons. He remained ever hopeful of being released when writing to his friends and family, often referring to himself as Rocket Man or the Man of Steel. He joked when he was released, he would be driven home in a 28-foot limousine. So where are we now? During October 2017, it was reported that prisoner number CK0635 was going to be set free, though he would not be picked up by a limousine. Albert Dryden had suffered a severe stroke and a parole board agreed that he could be released on compassionate grounds. Alex Watson a Durham County councillor who oversaw the district council at the time and was friends with Dryden, spoke to the press. Mr Dryden has had a severe stroke. He has been in hospital and he cannot speak. He has more than paid the penalty. You are talking about 26 years ago that it happened. He is in poor health and he is not going to recover and the prison authorities have decided he should be released. He will be looked after in a residential care home. He cannot harm anyone. He is a defenceless person. Just under a year later, on the morning of Saturday, September 15th, 2018, 27 years after the murder of Harry Collinson, 78-year-old Albert Dryden died in a county Durham care home. Alex Watson visited his friend a few weeks before Dryden's death and reportedly said, The man was dying. He had no life. He could nod his head and shake his head. He was frustrated. 
and very remorseful. Despite what people said, he was remorseful. It is just tragic all round. He never got a chance to say he was sorry, but you could see the remorse in his eyes. Roy Collinson was interviewed about the death of his brother's killer. Not once did he show any remorse, culpability or regret for what he had done. He looked to blame everyone but himself. It's over. But what he has done is going to impact generations of this family to come. Good riddance to the man. Thank you for listening and a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this podcast possible. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.